3. T. Much Comfort, The History of the Great Houses of England, and also the Smaller Manor Houses, is full of interest in connection with the study of furniture. There are many manor houses that show all the characteristics of the Gothic, Renaissance, Tudor and Jacobean periods, and from them we can learn much of the life of the times. The early ones show absolute simplicity in the arrangement, one large hall for everything, and later a small room or two added. The fire was on the floor and the smoke wandered around until it found its way out at the opening, or louver, in the roof. Then a chimney was built at the dais end of the hall, and the mantelpiece became an important part of the decoration. The hall was divided by screens into smaller rooms, leaving the remainder for retainers, and causing the clergy to inveigh against the new custom of the lord of the manor, eating in secret places. The staircase developed from the early winding stair about a newel or post to the beautiful broad stairs of the Tudor period. These were usually six or seven feet broad, with about six wide easy steps and then a landing. And the carving on the balusters was often very elaborate and sometimes very beautiful a ladder raised to the th power. Slowly the Gothic period died in England and slowly the Renaissance took its place. There was never the gaiety of decorative treatment that we find in France, but the English workmen while keeping their own individuality, learned a tremendous amount from the Italians who came to the country. Their influence is shown in the Henry V. Chapel in Westminster Abbey, and in the old part of Hampton Court Palace, built by Cardinal Wolsey. The religious troubles between Henry VII and the Pope and the change of religion helped to drive the Italians from the country, so the Renaissance did not get such a firm foothold in England as it did in France. The mingling of Gothic and Renaissance forms what we call the Tudor period. During the time of Elizabeth all trace of Gothic disappeared, and the influence of the Germans and Flemings who came to the country in great numbers, helped to shorten the influence of the Renaissance. The over-elaboration of the late Tudor time corresponded with the deterioration shown in France in the time of Henry IV. The Hall of Gray's Inn, the Halls of Oxford, the Charter House and the Hall of the Middle Temple are all fine examples of the Tudor period. We find very few names of furniture makers of those days, in fact. There are very few names known in connection with the buildings themselves. The word architect was little used until after the Renaissance. The owner and the surveyor were the people responsible, and the plans, directions and details given to the workmen were astonishingly meager. The great charm that we all feel in the Tudor and Jacobean periods is largely due to the beautiful paneled walls. Their woodwork has a color that only age can give and that no stain can copy. The first panels were longer than the later ones. Wide use was made of the beautiful, linen fold, design in the wainscoting, and there was also much elaborate carving and strap work. Scenes like the temptation of Adam and Eve were represented, heads in circular medallions, and simply decorative designs were used. In the days of Elizabeth it became the fashion to have the carving at the top of the paneling with plain panels below. Tudor and Jacobean mantelpieces were most elaborate and were of wood, stone, or marble richly carved to say nothing of the beautiful plaster ones, and there are many fine examples in existence. They were fond of figure decoration, and many subjects were taken from the Bible. The overmantels were decorated with coats of arms and other carving, and the entablature over the fireplace often had Latin mottos. The earliest firebacks date from the 15th century. Coats of arms and many curious designs were used upon them. The furniture of the Tudor period was much carved, and was made chiefly of oak. Cornices of beds and cabinets often had the egg and dart molding used on them, and the S-curve is often seen opposed on the backs of settees and chairs. It has a suggestion of a dolphin and is reminiscent of the dolphins of the Renaissance. 
The beds were very large. The great bed of ware being 12 feet square. The cornice. The bed head. The pedestals and pillars supporting the cornice were all richly carved. Frequently the pillars at the foot of the bed were not connected with it, but supported the cornice which was longer than the bed. The Courtney Bedstead, dated 1593, showing many of the characteristics of the ornament of the time, is 103-12 inches high, 94 inches long, 68 inches wide. The majority of the beds were smaller and lower, however, and the pillars usually rose out of drum-like members, huge acorn-like bulbs that were often so large as to be ugly. They appeared also on other articles of furniture, when in good proportion, with pillars tapering from them. They were very effective, and gradually they grew smaller. Some of the beds had the four apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, carved on the posts. They were probably the origin of the nursery rhyme, Four corners to my bed, four angels round my head, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, bless the bed that I lie on. Illustration, in this living room, Italian. Jacobean, and modern stuffed furniture, give a satisfactory effect because each piece is good of its kind and is in a certain relationship to each other, the huge clock with chimes and the animal casts are out of keeping, bed hanging were of silk, velvet, damask, wool damask, tapestry, etc. and there were fine linen sheets and blankets and counterpanes of wool work, the chairs were high backed of solid oak with cushions, there were also jointed stools, folding screens, chests, cabinets, tables with carpets, table covers, tapestry hangings, curtains, cushions, silver sconces, etc. Illustration, original Jacobean settle with tapestry covering. These pieces of furniture range in price between 900 and 1.400. Illustration, fine reproductions of Jacobean chairs of the time of Charles I.I. The carved front rail balances the carving on the back perfectly. The Jacobean period began with James I and lasted until the time of William and Mary or from 1603 to about 1689. In the early part there was still a strong Tudor feeling, and toward the end foreign influence made itself felt until the Dutch under William became paramount. Inigo Jones did his great work at this time in the Palladian style of architecture. His simpler taste did much to reduce the exaggeration of the late Tudor days. Chests of various kinds still remained of importance. Their growth is interesting, first the plain ones of very early days, then panels appeared. Then the Pwant Arch with its architectural effect. Then the low Pwant Arch of Tudor and early Jacobian times. And the geometrical ornament. Then came a change in the general shape. A drawer being added at the bottom. And at last it turned into a complete chest of drawers. Cabinets or cupboards were also used a great deal. And the most interesting are the court and livery cupboards. The derivation of the names is a bit obscure. But the court cupboard probably comes from the French court. Short. The first ones were high and unwieldy and the later ones were lower with some enclosed shelves. They were used for a display of plate. Much as the modern sideboard is used, the number of shelves was limited by rank. The wife of a baronet could have two, a countess three, a princess four, a queen five. They were beautifully carved. Very often, the doors to the enclosed portions having heads, Tudor roses, arches, spindle ornaments and many other designs common to the Tudor and Jacobean periods. They had a silk carpet put on the shelves with the fringe hanging over the ends, but not the front, and on this was placed the silver. The livery cupboard was used for food, and the word probably comes from the French lever, to deliver. It had several shelves enclosed by rails, not panels, so the air could circulate, and some of them had open shelves and a drawer for linen, 
they were used much as we use a serving table, or as the kitchen dresser was used in old New England days, in them were kept food and drink for people to take to their bedrooms to keep starvation at bay until breakfast, drawing tables were very popular during Jacobean times, they were described as having two ends that were drawn out and supported by sliders, while the center, previously held by them, fell into place by its own weight. Another characteristic table was the gate-legged or thousand-legged table, that was used so much in our own colonial times. There were also round, oval and square tables which had flaps supported by legs that were drawn out. Tables were almost invariably covered with a tablecloth. Some of the chairs of the time of James I were much like those of Louis XII, having the short back covered with leather, damask, or tapestry, put on with brass or silver nails and fringe around the edge of the seat. The chief characteristic of the chairs of this time was solidity, with the ornament chiefly on the upper parts, which were molded oftener than carved, with the backs usually high. A plain leather chair called the Cromwell chair, was imported from Holland. The solid oak back gave way at last to the half-solid back. Then came the open back with rails, and then the Charles I. I. chair, with its carved or turned uprights, its high back of cane, and an ornamental stretcher like the top of the chair back between the front legs, this is a very attractive feature, as it serves to give balance of decoration and also partly hides the plain stretcher from sight, a typical detail of Charles I.I. furniture is the crown supported by cherubs or opposed as curves, James I.I. used a crown and palm leaves, Grinling Gibbons did his wonderful work in carving at this time, using chiefly pear and lime wood, the greater part of his work was wall decoration, but he made tables, mirrors and other furniture as well, the carving was often in lighter wood than the background, and was in such high relief that portions of it had often to be pinned together, for it seemed almost in the round. Evelyn discovered Gibbons in a little shop working away at such a wonderful piece of carving that he could not rest until he had taken him to Sir Christopher Wren. From this introduction came the great amount of work they did together. The influence of his work was still seen in the early 18th century. The room at Noly House that was furnished for James I is of great interest as it is the same today as when first furnished. The bed is said to have cost L8.000, as it is one of the show places of England one should not miss a chance of seeing it. Until the time of the restoration the furniture of England could not compare in sumptuousness with that of the continental countries. England, besides having a simpler point of view, was in a perpetual state of unrest. The honest and hard-working English joiners and carpenters adapted in a plain and often clumsy way the styles of the different foreigners who came to the country, through it all. However, they kept the touch of national character that makes the furniture so interesting, and they often did work of great beauty and worth. When Charles I.I. came to the throne he brought with him the ideas of France, where he had spent so many years, and the change became very marked. The natural steward extravagance also helped to form his taste and soon we hear of much more elaborate decoration throughout the land. Many of the country towns were far behind London in the style of furniture, and this explains why some furniture that is dated 1670, for instance, seems to belong to an earlier time. The famous silver furniture of Noly House, Seven Oaks, belongs to this time. Evelyn mentions in his diary that the rooms of the Duchess of Portsmouth were full of Japan cabinets and screens, pendule clocks. Great vases of wrought plate, tables, stands, chimney furniture, sconces, branches, basiers, etc. All of massive silver, and later he mentions again her, massive pieces of plate, whole tables and stands of incredible value. 
in the reign of William and Mary, Dutch influence was naturally very pronounced, as William disliked everything English. The English, being now well grounded in the knowledge of construction, took the Dutch ideas as a foundation and developed them along their own lines, until we had the late Queen and type made by Chippendale. The change in the style of chairs was most marked and noticeable. They were more open-backed than in Charles's time and had two uprights and a spoon or fiddle-shaped splat to support the sitter's back. The chair backs took more the curve of the human figure, and the seats were broader in front than in the back. The cabriole legs were broad at the top and ended in claw or pad feet, and there were no straining rails. The shell was a common form of ornament, and all crowns and cherubs had disappeared. Inlay and marquetry came to be generously used but there had been many cabinets of Dutch marquetry brought to England even before the time of William and Mary. Flower designs in deedwoods, shell, mother of pearl, and ivory were used. The marquetry clocks made at this time are wonderful and characteristic examples of the work, and are among the finest clocks ever made for beauty of line and finish, and proportion. Although marquetry and inlay had much in common there is one great difference between them, and they should not be used as synonymous terms. In marquetry the entire surface of the article is covered with pieces of different colored woods cut very thin and glued on. It is like a modern picture puzzle done with regard to the design. In inlay, the design only is inlaid in the wood, leaving a much larger plain background. Veneering is a thin layer of beautiful and often rare wood glued to a foundation of some cheaper kind. The tall clocks and cabinets of William and Mary's time and the wonderful work of Boulle in France are examples of marquetry. The fine furniture of Hepplewhite and Sheridan are masterly examples of inlay. Illustration, examples of line reproductions. The lacquer chairs carry out the true feeling of the old with great skill. Illustration, reproduction of chairs showing the transition between the time of Charles I and William and Mary. The carved strut remains but the back is lower and simpler. Queen and, Queen and, furniture is a very elastic term. For it is often used to cover the reigns of William and Mary. Queen and. George I and a part of the reign of George I. I. Or, in other words, all the time of Dutch influence. The more usual method is to leave out William and Mary, but at best the classification of furniture is more or less arbitrary. For in England, as well as other countries, the different styles overlap each other. Chippendale's early work was distinctly influenced by the Dutch. Walnut superseded oak in popularity, and after 1720 mahogany gradually became the favorite. There was a good deal of walnut veneering done, and the best logs were saved for the purpose. Marquetry died out and gave place to carving, and the cabriole leg, one of the chief marks of Dutch influence, became a firmly fixed style. The carving was put on the knees and the legs ended in claw and ball and pad feet. Some chairs were simply carved with a shell or leaf or scroll on top rail and knees of the legs. In the more elaborately carved chairs the arms, legs, splat and top rail were all carved with acanthus leaves, or designs from Gibbons's decoration. Chairs were brought in the seat and high on back with wide splats, often decorated with inlay. In the early part of the period, the top rail curved into the side uprights, and the seat was set into a rebate or box seat. The chair back slowly changed in shape, becoming broader and lower. The splat ceased to be inlaid and was pierced and carved, and the whole chair assumed the shape made so familiar to us by Chippendale. Tables usually had cabriole legs, although there were some date or thousand-legged tables, and card tables, writing tables, and flap tables, were all used. It was in the Queen Anne period that high boys and low boys made their first appearance. In the short reign of Anne it also became the fashion to have great displays of Chinese porcelain, 
and over mantels, cupboards, shelves and tables were covered with wonderful pieces of it. Addison, in Sir Roger de Coverley, humorously describes a lady's library of the time. And as it was some time before the lady came to me I had an opportunity of turning over a great many of her books, which were ranged in a very beautiful order. At the end of the folios which were finely bound and gilt were great jars of china placed one above another in a very noble piece of architecture. The quartos were separated from the octavos by a pile of smaller vessels, which rose in a delightful pyramid. The octavos were bounded by tea dishes of all shapes, colors, and sizes, which were so disposed on a wooden frame that they looked like one continued pillar indented with the finest strokes of sculpture and stained with the greatest variety of dyes. Part of the library was enclosed in a kind of square, consisting of one of the prettiest grotesque works that ever I saw, and made up of scaramouches, lions, monkeys, mandarins, trees, shells, and a thousand other odd figures in China ware. In the midst of the room was a little Japan table. Between 1710 and 1730 lacquer ware became very fashionable, and many experiments were made to imitate the beautiful oriental articles brought home by Dutch traders. In Holland a fair amount of success was attained and a good deal of lacquered furniture was sent from there to England where the brass and silver mounts were added. English and French were experimenting. The French with the greatest success in their Vernies Martin, mentioned elsewhere, which really stood quite in a class by itself. But the imitations of Chinese and Japanese lacquer were inferior to the originals. Pine, oak, lime, and many other woods, were used as a base and the fashion was so decided that nearly all kinds of furniture were covered with it. This lacquer ware of William and Mary's and Queen Anne's time must not be confounded with the Japan furniture of Hethelites and Sheridan's time, which was quite different and of much lower grade. It was in the reign of Queen Anne that the sun began to arise on English cabinet work, it shone gloriously through the 18th century, and sank in early Victorian clouds. Illustration, two important phases of Chippendale's work an elaborate ribbon back chair and one of the more staid gothic type, Chippendale and the 18th century in England. The classification of furniture in England is on a different basis from that of France, as the rulers of England were not such patrons of art as were the French kings. Flemish, Dutch and French influences all helped to form the taste of the people. The Jacobean period lasted from the time of James I to the time of William and Mary. William brought with him from Holland the strong Dutch feeling that had a tremendous influence on the history of English furniture and during Anne's short reign the Dutch feeling still lasted. It was not until the early years of the reign of George I.I. that the Georgian period came into its own with Chippendale at its head. Some authorities include William and Mary and Queen Anne in the Georgian period, but the more usual idea is to divide it into several parts, better known as the times of Chippendale, Adam, Hethelite and Sheridan. French influence is marked throughout and is divided into parts. The period of Chippendale was contemporaneous with that of Louis Exby and the second part included the other three men and corresponded with the last years of Louis Exby, when the transition to a Louis Exby was beginning, and the time of Louis Exby. It was not until the latter part of Chippendale's life that he gave up his love of Rococo curves and scrolls, dripping water effects, and his Chinese and Gothic styles. His early chairs had a Dutch feeling, and it is often only by ornamentation that one can date them. The top of the Dutch chair had a flowing curve, the splat was first solid and plain, then carved, and later pierced in geometrical designs, then came the curves that were used so much by Chippendale. The carving consisted of swags and pendants of fruit and flowers, shells, acanthus leaves, scrolls, eagles' heads, 
carved in relief on the surface. Dutch chairs were usually of walnut and some of the late ones were of mahogany. Mahogany was not used to any extent before 1720, but at that time it began to be imported in large quantities, and its lightness and the ease with which it could be worked made it appropriate for the lighter style of furniture then coming into vogue. Chippendale began to make chairs with the curved top that is so characteristic of his work. The splat back was always used, in spite of the French, and its treatment is one of the most interesting things in the history of English furniture. It gave scope for great originality. Although, as I have said before, foreign influence was strong, the ideas were adapted and worked out by the great cabinet makers of the Georgian period with a vigor and beauty that made a distinct English style, and often went far, far ahead of the originals. There were, so far as we know, three Thomas Chippendales, the second was the great one. He was born in Worcester, England, about 1710, and died in 1779. He and his father, who was also a carver, came to London before 1727. Very little is known about his life, but we may feel sure he was that rare combination, a man of genius with decided business ability. He not only designed the furniture which was made in his shop, but executed a large part of it also, and superintended all the work done there by others. That he was a man of originality shows distinctly through his work, for although he adapted and copied freely and was strongly influenced by the Dutch, French, and Chinese taste, there is always his own distinctive touch. The furniture of his best period, and those belonging to his school, has great beauty of line and proportion, and the exquisite carving shows a true feeling for ornament in relation to plain surfaces. There are a few examples in existence of carving in almost as high relief as that of Grinling Gibbons, Swags, etc. And in his most Rococo period his carving was very elaborate. It always had great clearness of edge and cut and a wonderful feeling for light and shade, in what is called Irish Chippendale, which was furniture made in Ireland after the style of Chippendale. The carving was in low relief and the edges fairly smoothed off, which made it much less interesting. Chippendale looked upon his work as one of the arts and placed his ideal of achievement very high, and that he received the recognition of the best people of the time as an artist of merit is proved by his election to the Society of Arts with such men as Sir Joshua Reynolds, Horace Walpole, Samuel Johnson, David Derrick, and others. The genius of Chippendale justly puts him in the front rank of cabinet makers and his influence was the foundation of much of the fine work done by many others during the 18th century. He is often criticized for his excessive Rococo taste as displayed in the plates of the gentlemen's and cabinet makers director, and in some of his finished work. Many of the designs in the director were probably never carried out and some of them were probably added to by the soaring imaginations of the engraver. This is true of all the books published by the great cabinet makers, and it always seems more fair to have their reputations rest on their finished work which has come down to us. Illustration, the dripping water effect, of which Chippendale was so fond at one time, is plainly shown on the doors of this particularly fine example of his work. Chippendale, of course, must bear the chief part of the charge of over-elaboration and he frankly says that he thinks much enrichment is necessary. He copied my Saumier's designs and had a great love for gilding, but the display of Rococo taste is not in all his work by any means, nor was it so excessive as that of the French. The more self-restrained temperament of the Anglo-Saxon race makes a deal of difference. He early used the OG curb and cabriole leg, the knees of which he carved with cartouches and leaves or other designs. The front rail of the chair also was often carved, 
There were several styles of curved leg, the cabriole leg of Dutch influence, and the curved style of Louis XV. There were also several variations on the claw and ball foot. Many Chippendale chairs were without stretchers, but the straight-legged style usually had four. The seats were sometimes in a box frame or rebate, and sometimes the covering was drawn over the frame and fastened with brass-headed nails. Chippendale in the director speaks of red morocco, Spanish leather, damask, tapestry and other needlework as being appropriate for the covering of his chairs. In about 1760 or 1765 he began to use the straight leg for his chairs. The different shapes of splats will often help in deciding the dates of their making, and its development is of great interest. The curves shown in the diagram on page 84 are the merest suggestions of the outline of the splat, and they were carved most beautifully in many different designs. Ribbon back chairs are dated about 1755 and show the adapted French influence. His Gothic and Chinese designs were made about 1760-1770. Ladder back chairs nearly always had straight legs, either plain or with double OG curve and bead moldings, but there are a few examples of ladder back and cabriole legs combined, although these are very rare. The chair settees of the Dutch time, with backs having the appearance of chairs side by side, were also made by Chippendale. Love seats were small settees. It was naively said that they were too large for one and too small for two. A large armchair that shows a decided difference in the manners of the early 18th century and the present day was called the drunkard's chair, when the craze for Indian work was at its height. There were many pieces of old oak and walnut furniture covered with lacquer to bring it up to the fashionable standard, but their forms were not suitable, and oak especially, with its coarse grain did not lend itself to the process. The stands for lacquer cabinets vary in style, but were often gilded in late Louis XIV and Louis XV style. The difference between true lacquer and its imitations is hard to explain. The true was made by repeated coats of a special varnish, each rubbed down and allowed to become hard before the next was put on. This gave a hard, cool, smooth surface with no stickiness. Modern work, done with paint and French varnish, has not this delightful feeling, but is nearly always clammy to the touch and the colors are hurt by the process of polishing. Chippendale did not use much lacquer, but in the director, he often says such and such designs would be suitable for it. Much of the furniture that Chippendale made was heavy, but the best of it had much beauty. His delicate fretwork tea tables are a delight, with their fretwork cupboards and carving. He seemed to combine many sides in his artistic temperament, a fact that many people lay to his power of assimilating the work of others. He did not make sideboards in our sense of the word. His were large side tables, sometimes with a drawer for silver and sometimes not. Pier tables were very much like them in shape, but smaller, and were often gilded to match the mirrors which were placed above them. The larger pieces of Chippendale furniture had the same characteristic of perfect workmanship and detail which the chairs possess. Dining tables were made in sections consisting of two semicircular ends and two center pieces with flaps which could all be joined together and make a very large table. The beds he made had four posts and cornice tops elaborately carved and often gilded, with a strong Louis XV feeling. The curtains hung from the inside of the cornice. He also made many other styles of beds, such as canopy beds, tent beds, flat tester beds, Chinese beds, Gothic beds. There was almost nothing he did not make for the house from wall brackets to the largest wardrobes. Too many people used to the simple Chippendale furniture which is commonly seen. The idea of rich and beautiful carving and gilding comes as a surprise, 
and even in the director there are no plates which show his most beautiful work. His elaborate furniture was naturally chiefly order work, and so was not pictured, and much of it that is left is still in the possession of the descendants of the original owners. The small number of authentic pieces which have reached public sales have been eagerly snapped up by private collectors and museums at large prices. Illustration, it is interesting to compare the generous curves of the Chippendale sofa with the greater severity of Hathalite's taste. In America much of the furniture called Chippendale was not made by Chippendale himself, but was made after his designs and copied from imported pieces by clever cabinet makers here in the, then, colonies. The average American of the 18th century was a simple and not over-rich person of good breeding and refined taste who appreciated the fact that the elaborate furniture of England and France would not be in keeping with life in America, and so either imported the simpler kinds, or demanded that the home cabinet maker choose good models for his work. This partly explains why we have so much really good colonial furniture, and not so much of the elaborately carved and gilded variety. Illustration a valuable collection of an atom mirror, a block front, knee hole chest of drawers, and a hepolite chair. Robert Adam Robert Adam was the second of the four sons of William Adam, and was born in 1728. The Adam family was Scotch of good social position. Robert early showed a talent for drawing. He was ambitious, and, as old Roman architecture interested him above all other subjects, he decided that he could attain his ideals only by study and travel in Italy. He returned to England in 1758 after four years of hard work with the results of his labors, the chief treasure being his careful drawings of Diocletian's villa. His classical taste was firmly established, and was to be one of the important influences of the 18th century. Robert and James Adam went into partnership and became the most noted architects of their day in England. The list of their buildings is long and interesting, and much of their architectural and decorative work is still in existence. To many people it will seem like putting the cart before the horse to say that Robert Adam had in any way influenced the style we call Louis XVI, but it is a plausible theory and certain.